0: Please do take a seat. <laughs> the reading this evening is taken from the Book of 2 Samuel, and its chapter one, and that can be found on page three hundred and four in the red Bibles. And we have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. So 2 Samuel chapter 1 After the death of Saul David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days On the third day a man arrived from Saul's camp and his clothes torn and dust on his head When he came to David he fell to the ground to pay him honour ''Where have you come from?'' David asked him. He answered, ''I have escaped from the Israelite camp.'' ''What happened?'' David asked, ''Tell me.'' ''The men fled from battle,'' he replied. ''Many of them fell and died, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead.'' Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, ''How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead?'' I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned round and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amaclite, he I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me, I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men who took hold of their clothes and tore them, they mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought in the report, ''Where are you from?'' ''I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite," he said. David asked him, ''Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed?'' Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not on the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you neither have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields, for there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How mighty have the fallen battle! Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.
1: Thanks very much indeed, Trisha, for reading that for us. Uh, let's pray together and then we will have a look at it. We we'll use the words that we were just singing. Father, we pray that we would praise the name of Jesus more and more. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, the books of, uh, well, book of 2 Samuel and the uh, books of 1 and 2 Samuel go together. Let's try and get our heads around. If you want to get your head around all of those books, those two books in one go, which we need to do, um, we're going to do it through uh, the medium of Brexit. Okay? The books of 1 and 2 Samuel, The Medium of Brexit. Brexit, as you know, um, is a decision that was taken. And it was a fairly complicated one. At the same time, it was also a... In one sense, it was a straightforward one. You, you either leave or you don't leave. You leave or you stay. So in one sense, it was straightforward. But it was, you know, it was a complicated decision. Um, and it had lots of parts to it. And what has unfolded in the years since the referendum... You have a decision that is taken, and then we discover that actually it left a huge question hanging, which is, okay, so Brexit is happening, but what kind of Brexit is it going to be? And some people who said, yes, I voted, regardless of whether you thought it was a good idea or a bad idea, people who voted for uh, Brexit or against it, some people voted for it thinking, well, I want Brexit, but what I mean is this. And others were thinking, no, 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 when I voted for Brexit, what I thought I was getting was this and others, of course, said, well, when, when I was voting for Brexit, what I intended, really, was, was this. <laughs> and the question is left, hanging. and of course our experience in this country has been we have been trying to figure out what Brexit means. You take a decision, but actually it leaves a huge question, hanging hey, of what kind of Brexit is it going to be? 1 and 2 Samuel pivots early in 1 Samuel, around a decision that God's people take. They take a decision that they want to have a king. Uh, It begins with with Samuel, um, and the people have lived through the age of the judges, and they take a decision, the judges are failing them, and they say, we want to have a king over us. Now, it is a complicated issue, and, and the, Bible, the Bible really presents its, its full complexity. So it's complicated for a couple of reasons. It's complicated because, in one sense, the judges have failed them, and they are saying, we want to have a king over us. But equally, they want to have a king, they say, because they want to be like the other nations. And they are effectively turning their back on God in some sense. And Samuel, the prophet, rails against it and says, this is a really bad idea. It is complicated. But at the same time, it's made more complicated by the fact that God allows it and allows them to go through this and have a king. And equally, I think this is the bit that makes it most complex, is that he then decides that he's going to use the role of the king as quite an important part of his people's history. If you reach back into Genesis and you think from the beginning of Genesis when everything goes wrong, we've been looking for a son, we've been looking for a son, we've been looking for a son... Um, one who will crush the serpent. And from 1 Samuel onwards, we add a new layer to this, which is that we add, we're now looking for a son and a king because God is going to use the figure of the king as a key part of his saviour, Messiah, rescuer. So it's, a, in one sense, it's a simple decision. Do you want a king or not a king? But it's a complicated one. And as soon as they say they want a king, what happens is it leaves a huge question hanging in the air. What kind of king are you going to have? What kind of Brexit are you going to have? What kind of king is going to lead this people? Some people are thinking probably when they say we want a king, we'd like some kind of warrior figure, please. Others are saying, well, no, actually, I'd like uh, something more of a diplomat to engage with the nations. Others saying, well, no, actually, I'd like a, a much more of a, a, a commander-in-chief, an absolute ruler. Uh, and some who are saying, well, no, I'd rather have a, a steely politician who will navigate our way through. Do you see, that it leaves this huge question. And in fact, then, if you glance up at the screen, this is a, a sort of sketch overview of 1 and 2 Samuel. And all this is important, believe me, run with me. Um, it starts with Samuel He anoints, so they're chapter 8, it's not when you don't meet Saul in chapter 8, but that's when they want a king, and that is the story of King Saul, and underneath that then comes this layer, as God says, well, we're going to have, I'm going to sow another seed, if you like, and that is King David, and we meet King David half, just a few chapters into Saul's reign, and Saul's is the tragic story, if you like, of what the king shouldn't be of how it falls apart, of how he turns away and doesn't listen to God's word, and what unravels. And this seed is sown of David, of of another kind of king, and the kind of king that there perhaps should be. So you see you've got these two layers running side by side for a while, and where we land in this chapter, as you can see at the opening words, if you've still got it open, please do turn back to it, 2 Samuel chapter 1, after the death of Saul, this is the transition point. After the death of Saul, we now ask ourselves, well, what kind of king is going to emerge in David? Now David is not perfect, as you know, and this first his life will then fall into his kingship will fall into a couple of big phases. But what we're looking at this term is, if you like, the rise of the king, of the true king and the king that God brings. what kind of king does God bring to his people? And this is the transition. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, in the Bible, all the things, important things happened on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Um, The end of 1 Samuel is intense, and again, we need to know this, otherwise this doesn't make sense. It's intense, there's a lot of fighting going on. Saul has gone further north, and um, it's a bit of a disaster. Um, He is in battle. His kingship has been unraveling anyway. And he and his three sons, including Jonathan, who has played such a key role in David's life, uh, are killed. His three sons are killed. Saul, when he sees that the, the battle is lost, realizes that he's going to be taken and, and slaughtered himself. And so, what he does is he, he commits suicide on the battlefield. Not before asking uh, his armor bearer if he would kind of finish him off. Uh, and his armor bearer says, No, I'm, I'm not doing anything, not getting rid of that. Um, so, in the end, Saul has to fall on his own sword. And that is the, the battle that has taken place further north, and it's a disaster for God's people, and they are routed. Further south, David has been fighting elsewhere, and he, as we're told here, has been victorious. He, actually, he'd been, he'd been striking down the Amalekites, and he's gone to Ziklag. Now, he's, he's been striking down the Amalekites. The Amalekites have always been like a nagging problem for God's people. In, way back in their early history... They defeated God's people. It was a uh, a seminal loss. It's bad news for them. And in fact, Saul's kingship, for those of you who like following these threads, had unraveled when he failed to kill the king of the Amalekites. So there's all sorts of interesting layers to this. But he is there. And you have to imagine David has just been... uh, He's had this victory over the Amalekites, which says to us, the readers, something good is coming. Uh, He's rescued his two wives who were captured. And he's presumably pretty tired after battle and he's gone to stay in Ziklag, but he knows nothing of what has happened. He knows that years ago he was anointed as a possible king. He knows there are other uh, uh, figures who might take that throne. But there he is waiting and he knows nothing of what has happened. And let's imagine then that you see on the road, coming down to, to, towards Ziklag where you're staying, uh, this guy who appears. He's obviously been in battle Uh, clothes are torn, looks disheveled and he appears and you're thinking, if you're David okay, so there's news what has happened? I wonder what has has unfolded Saul, have they won? Have they not? Where are they? This is what unfolds he came to David and he fell to the ground to pay him honour Where have you come from David asked him I've escaped from the Israelite camp what happened? David says, tell me The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear and the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me. And of course I said, What can I do? And he said, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. And he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he'd fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Many of the details of what he describes are true. But he comes with one lie. And he comes with an angle, with a perspective through that lie. Okay, many of the details are true. He probably... I, I told you that Saul fell on his sword because his armor-bearer wouldn't kill him. Um, so this man didn't kill him. But he was probably there, uh, perhaps sniffing around the battlefield when they were slain. Perhaps looking to do some looting. Perhaps he oversaw what happened and he saw the opportunity and thought, This is this is a chance. I don't know if you if you saw Les Miserables on the BBC last week. If you're going back to see it later tonight, it began with an opening scene on a battlefield and a man scratching around dead bodies and rooting for loot. Uh, it's a very good opening scene. And here he is, and he's got this crown, and he's come and he said, Look. And his lie is that he killed Saul when he didn't. And his angle is what he's trying to say to David. He's saying, David, good news. I've come to you. This is, look what's happened. Your arch enemy, Saul. The one you were in the shadow of is dead. Look what's happened. This is your time. This is your moment. This is your platform. And of course, it's my platform too. Because I've brought you this great news. Here is your crown. You might notice, you might remember me, the Amalekite that brought you news when you've come into your kingdom and have got some land to dish out. And he comes with an angle and a perspective. And he betrays this kind of self-centered mindset. And David's perspective is what the writer wants us to draw attention to. Because if this Amalekite... Kind of what do you set up in the opening of this book? You set up what kind of king is coming. What kind of king is he going to be? And you introduce this Amalekite who comes in and says, come on, David, now's your time. Grasp the throne. And he does it to show us... Actually, that David's perspective is quite the opposite. This is David's perspective. It is a deep love for the Lord. It is a deep concern for the right things of the Lord's. Not his own success, not his own moment, not his own platform, and this is the guy who's been for years, kind of aware that this is a possibility. You can imagine what it must have been like to see it presented to you, but that's not his view. Now it's pretty stark what happens. So let's read on. This is uh, his his perspective, and this is how it unfolds. Firstly, eleven. Uh, then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Uh, and we'll come back to his grief in just a moment. And then David says to the young man, he brought him the report, Where are you from? And he says, I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite. And David, uh, through that, would know. The term there is actually his... Uh, uh, the son of a foreigner, he's effectively a resident alien. Gosh, all things are Brexit, aren't they? Uh, he's a resident alien. Um, so actually, he, he, he really sh- would know the, the, the ways of Israel, if you like. He's not quite the outsider that he makes out. He's a resident alien, hence probably why there's a, a good bit of gain in it for him. And David says, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? how dare you do this? How did you, how did you take a spear and place it into the Lord's anointed? Now this gives you the insight into, into David's perspective. David, the, David is, the Lord's anointed being Saul was a big deal for him. If the Lord had placed Saul over his people, the Lord had placed Saul over his people. It is not in David's, Gift is not David's plan and purpose to overthrow what the Lord has done. His deepest concern is for what God may be doing and not his own platform, not his own place, not his own perspective, uh, his own sort of uh, um, uh, success or whatever it might be. How dare you, he says. You see, he can't actually kind of compute that you would... would, And in fact, in David's own life, various times that he had that he could have taken the sword to Saul and refuses. It just shouldn't happen in David's mind. And it's pretty stark what happens. But what he is doing, this deep love that he has for the Lord, it is... Let's be honest, it is a fierce love in a sense... It's a fierce commitment. It's a kind of righteous and a just love for the Lord. And it unfolds, and he leads his people through it. Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down, and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David's perspective. You see, the the way the, the, the. The opening to this book is framed. We need to know what kind of king we're dealing with. We are dealing with a king that the Lord is bringing, who has a reverence and a a holy love for the Lord. And David is that kind of leader. Now we're we're building up a picture, if you like, of what kind of king God is bringing, and it takes us to the, the, the second part, which we'll look at here. Uh, the second of these two, which is David's passion. And his passion is this. It's actually a deep love for others. So he has a deep love for the Lord, but he also has a deep love for others. And it unfolds in this lament, this public lament. Um, and it's written and it's, uh, it's placed um, in the book, uh, which we don't have anymore, the book of Jashar. Uh, it's called The Song of the Bow, The Lament of the Bow. And it's, it's beautiful in lots of ways. Um, if you don't, you probably may, well, you may not have thought it, you may have done, poetry frequently brings shape to our emotions. It's, why, it's partly why we have liturgy, it's partly why we have people often reach for poetry at funerals. A classic example, which I appreciate, is my generation and not lots of yours, um, is four weddings and a funeral. Uh, and in a very funny film uh, of its time, and there is a point suddenly where everything drops dead and there is a funeral that happens and there's a, a famous poem that uh, he reads out. Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. It's about silence and silence and things. But it's the, the rhythm of the poetry, it gives shape to emotions. And that is what David is doing here. And he's shaping for his people what is, what is surprising, is a deep love for others. It is a love for, for Saul and for Jonathan. And for Jonathan, we might think, okay, I can run with that, I can understand that. But it's a deep love for Saul, which is remarkable when you think that he spent a good number of years running away from Saul, who was trying to kill him. He leads his people publicly, in a sense, with Saul, privately, in a sense, with Jonathan, the, the way the figures work. Uh, it opens in verse 19, a gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. For the blood of the slain from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan, did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle! Jonathan lies slain on your heights, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. He's portraying the fallen Saul, the the point about his shield no longer being rubbed. That was that they they rubbed the shield with oil uh, to prevent it uh, being easy to grasp to protect it. it. No longer will it be robbed. It lies slain in the earth. The man who sought David's life, do you see, he extols and he lifts up. In fact, God had told Saul that the crown was going to leave him and was going to pass to his neighbor, David, earlier in 1 Samuel. And David now, despite the fact that Saul spent his time trying to kill his neighbor, David extols and lords Saul, his neighbor. And in Jonathan there is the beauty of the relationship that they have. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my my brother. You were very dear to me, and you'll notice that it says those words, Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. He is speaking of a level of spiritual friendship that Jonathan and David had, a deep intimacy And I wonder, and if you read through 1 Samuel, you'll see how it played out. And I wonder if we have in some ways lost, perhaps in the cacophony of our modern world, we have lost a language for the deep intimacy of spiritual friendship. A spiritual friendship that isn't sexual has a deep intimacy to it between brothers in their case, between that christian brotherhood christian sisterhood and i wonder if we are the poorer for not having it and you see what he is saying is here is david's perspective his love for the lord here is david's passion his love for others even those who did him wrong his love for those with whom he had that spiritual friendship and this is the kind of king that god brings to his people this is the kind of king he brings to his people. And if the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, in a sense, what are, what are we adding to God's people's understanding of who God is? He says, look, I am this kind of God, I bring this kind of king. And in fact, you know, something that I think is a reasonably neat pairing, you can come back at me later if you think this works or not. In what you see in this opening with David's perspective and his passion, it is remarkable because, of course, David is an outline of the kind of king, which will be filled out over time. David will fail. It will be filled out. It will be filled out ultimately by Jesus. And in his perspective and his love for the Lord, you hear him say, in a sense, or you hear Jesus say, the first thing that you're to do is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And in his love for others, as he leads them in love for others, you hear him say, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the king that God brings, and He leads His people into a deeper love for the Lord and a deeper love for others. And so, what do we do with this? So we bring this together. What do we do with this? Um, I wonder. This is a question. Perhaps you can chew over, and you can ask one another over uh, food. How is God's king? How is God's king leading you in love for the Lord? And in love for others. Perhaps you, you might look back on this past year and think, oh, that's how he's been doing that. Um, if you, might, you might have something encouraging to share with others. It may mean checking your perspective. So these things are. David, it might mean saying, oh, let's check my perspective. I wonder as I look ahead to 2019, actually, is my perspective governed by my platform and my success? And this is my moment. And you may need to check your passion. Do I have this kind of heart for my neighbor? Do I have this kind of heart for others? But I wonder how we might encourage one another as we go into this year and as we start. This is the kind of king that God gives his people, supremely in his son and his true king. This is what the, the, the kind of king that God gives us. How is he leading us? How is he going to lead us this year into a greater love for him, for him uh, the Lord's? and a great love for one another. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we see you bring your King onto the stage and we look ahead, we know it's surpassed and overflown in the Lord Jesus. May we want to be led by him in our love for you, in our love for one another. Would it be the beating heart of who we are as a community of believers? We pray in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.